It's now on. <laughs> Thanks, Vets. Um, anyway, so talking about what we talked about two weeks ago, we started with chapter 34, and chapter 34 and 35 kind of are the end of what we've been going through when it comes to God and judgment and the nations and all these things. Um, and last week, we, or two weeks ago, I should say, we saw that in particular. We saw how God in chapter 34 is going to judge the nations, and it was a horrific judgment. We saw how the Lord's sword is going to be saturated in the blood and in the fat and all of this. Um, and it was a terrible word in a way because it shows just how damning, really, judgment is and just how damning sin is. And so that was what the whole chapter was about. It was just about this judgment which is to come. Um, but thankfully, we now have chapter 35. And chapter 35 is, is, in a way, the opposite side of the coin where we're going to see, okay, what else is there? Is there anything else or is it just what we've experienced in chapter 34? Um, and so going to our maps real quick. Um, and the reason why we're going to go through our maps too, next week it's going to be important for the maps. Um, if anyone's read ahead in Isaiah, they know that we're coming up to no longer poetry and prophetic um, utterances, but a brief instance in history for the next few chapters where we're going to see exactly what happened with Assyria. We're going to talk about how all the devastation that they bring. So it's going to be important that we remember kind of in a way some of this stuff. So we have Assyria up here who's been conquering everybody, all of their powers extending across the known world at the time. Uh, we go to the next map to see exactly how they did it, just going each direction, north, south, east, and west. They, they kind of, it was kind of incredible, really, what they did. Um, and then we have the next map. And uh, we have Israel up here and Judah down here with Jerusalem right here. Um, Next week, when we talk about what Assyria is doing, Israel will have already been destroyed by Assyria. So they're no, they're no more. Um, it's basically just the Judeans down here that are continuing the line of David. Um, and we're going to see, okay, what happens, though, with this Assyria invasion. They're actually going to be coming from the south, in a way, uh, as we'll talk about next week. So, um, all right, so that's where we're at. And then today, again, we're talking about, though, the opposite side of judgment. So starting with verse 1 of chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So as we talked about, Isaiah continues the motif from the previous chapter. We saw how the land would become a wilderness in chapter uh, 34 via the desolation of the judgment. Yet now, a new thought comes into mind. We find that the same wilderness, the same dry land will be glad. Indeed, where once the desert was full of sorrow, now there is rejoicing as flora blossoms in the once barren landscape. Yet it isn't just some blossom or flowers here and there. No, it is an abundance of life coming from this barren place. 
that the glory of Lebanon and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon are given is to show the significance. As Lebanon was known for its lofty cedars, and Carmel was known for the plain of Sharon. Thus, these are meant to show just how abundant it would be. It would be like these places. It is in this way that the glory of God will be seen by them. Who are they? The most reasonable answer is the people of God. In ancient times, it would have been understood as the people of Israel and Judah, and now those grafted onto the tree by Christ, as we saw, see in Romans 9 and 10. The weak hands and feeble knees show that the state of the people is at right now. They're scared. They had been helpless. They've been hopeless, worn out, exhausted, and overworn by the powers of the world and the many pitfalls they have encountered individually as well as corporately as a nation. How, though, will they be strengthened? The answer is given to those who are anxious, those who look upon the world powers and feel so insignificant. They are told to be strong and fear not. Why? Because God is coming. He will bring vengeance. Though you struggle and though the darkness rises against the people, God will bring justice for them. He comes and he saves. Now we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So the promise of salvation to come is now seen even more blatantly. The healing does not end with the land, but furthers to the people themselves. Their own physical ailments shall be healed. Those whose eyes were blind will now be able to see, and the deaf will be able to hear. That Christ literally fulfilled this passage through his healing ministry is evident, though it could also be understood from the previous sections of Isaiah, which described the blind and the deaf as lacking spiritual insight. In either case, the literal physical or metaphorical, God heals all. The dual nature of the salvation is further emphasized in verse 6. The lame man will be healed. Once invalid, he is now able to move as a deer. Meanwhile, the mute will be able to sing. Why is all this occurring? Because water is now found in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This may be a reflection of the Exodus period as well. Though a context, it still signifies God's salvation. Again, the once barren desert becomes a place of life with water. The thirsty ground, implying the wasteland, brings forth water. Yes, here there is life. The concept of the jackals reflects on the previous chapter, where the jackals lived in the wilderness. Now the same area where the jackals had made their abode finds fresh grass, reeds, and rushes. Plant life abounds in the wilderness. Now come to the end of the chapter, 8 through 10. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous, ravenous beast come upon it. They shall be, not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. 
Probably some of my favorite verses of Isaiah right there. In chapter 33, Isaiah prophesied about the highways, claiming the highways lie waste, the traveler ceases, covenants are broken, cities are despised, there is no regard for man. Now, however, there is another highway. This highway is different, for it is called the way of holiness. Holiness, by deferation, implies separation, distinction, a cut between one thing against another. As such, this way of holiness does not have the defilement which has occurred in the previous chapters. Indeed, the highway belongs to those who walk in holiness, who understand the distinction between what is good and evil, right and wrong, and seek to live in opposition to the world around them. To those who walk according to God's will, they find themselves walking in holiness. The second aspect of this, that even if they are fools, they shall not go astray, is interesting. There are two main interpretations. The first is that the way is so easy to walk that even the simple will be able to walk without stumbling. The second is that the word fool always specifies one who rejects God's wisdom, righteousness, and morality. Thus, some commentators see this as a chiastic statement. The unclean will not pass. The way belongs to the holy, uh, to, to righteous people. The fool will not stumble on it because they cannot walk on it. In any case, the point seems to be that there is a way to walk, a way to live, which is right, and it is attainable. Previously in chapter 34, we saw how the wild animals took over where the land, uh, where the humans once dwelled. Now, however, the wild animals, which were a threat to humanity, are no longer there. Despite the land being depicted as a perfect place for such predators, no such predator will harass or attack those who are redeemed. Indeed, the redeemed have safety and assurance as they travel. The question of the day is, where does the highway ultimately lead? As it is, roads do go from one place to another. Here it is no different. And here we find the answer to the question. The ransomed of the Lord have traveled the highway and they return to Zion, to Jerusalem, the place where God and man mingle together in peace. They do so not as a hopeless people, but with shouts of joy and acclamation over what their God has accomplished in their redemption. Indeed, despite the destruction of the previous chapter, we find the redeemed, those who have escaped the judgment, have no fear, no sorrow, no misery. Instead, they have obtained the opposite, gladness, joy, indeed everlasting joy. It is not based upon what they have accomplished, but everything God has done in order to bring his people back home. He has secured a way of holiness, a way of righteousness, that none would be able to take away. And in the safety and assurance of this salvation, God's people return to his presence in peace. So the main point of this chapter is to show the opposite side of the proverbial coin. In the previous chapter, we saw the judgment of God coming upon sinful people. In this chapter, however, we see God's grace and his mercy. Despite the judgment, God still saves. Despite what the people may even deserve, God has ransomed them and brought them back to himself. This has repercussions not only for them, but the awesome salvation affects all things, both spiritual and physical, as the people rejoice in the strength, majesty, glory, and salvation of their God.
If there was any cause to rejoice, it would be in this message from Isaiah. In two chapters, Isaiah has managed to bring us to the absolute darkness just to bathe us in eternal light. Last chapter, we saw how sinful humanity deserved judgment. In this chapter, we see how redemption is still possible despite who we are. This, in all truth, is the reality of our situation when it comes to humanity. We are truly sinful, truly guilty, and truly worthy of being dispossessed from the reality which God has granted to us. We have truly accomplished great evils, and we have all fallen short of the standard of God's glory. So yes, the judgment for such a people as us is certainly reasonable in light of our darkness. Yet that is not the end of the story. It is often claimed that the Bible is a dark book. And if we were to take only the previous chapter and ignore the one we have seen today, then we would all agree. Yet the Bible is not dark. No, the Bible is honest. It is truth. It presents humanity as we really are in our failings. It is a witness to each of us. The witness, however, does not end with our darkness. Instead, it draws us also into the indescribable, the one from whom all good things flow, the source of all that is good. Yes, it brings us into the light of God. We are reminded that though we are creatures who are broken, it is possible for us to be healed. It is possible for us to be changed. It is possible for us to be redeemed. In today's text, the redemption of the world and the restoration of God's people is highlighted. Despite the onslaught, there is a redemption which takes place by God's grace. We notice it is not the people who have accomplished this. We have not accomplished this. We are dark, twisted, broken individuals who live in broken societies and family constructs. No, the reality is we could not make our own highway of holiness because we are so easily swayed by the powers of darkness. It requires another for such a highway to be made, a highway which leads directly into the presence of God Almighty, a highway which those who walk are protected from the onslaught of the world. This onslaught of the world is not just the physical elements. Yes, Isaiah describes it in such a way with wild animals which roam. Even more, though, is the protection um, against that which is untruth, that which would Tell us that this is the way to God and therefore goodness. It is protection against the wiles of the world, which seeks to undermine the God of all. He has created this safe passage. He has accomplished it apart from us. He has done it himself to provide for his people a way home again. Thus we come full circle in Isaiah. For just as Isaiah stood before the holy throne of God in chapter 6. And just as he recognized to his utter horror that he was a sinful man among a sinful people. And just as he saw his existence being melted away before the holiness of God. So God redeems him and purifies Isaiah. So it is with all those who would seek God and place their faith in him. Such a faith is not blind to Isaiah. And neither is it blind to us. It recognizes the great power of the God who has given us so much. It sees and trusts in what it sees. It is not a leap into the dark. It is a leap into the ever-present arms of one who is capable of carrying us all the way home. Who can teach us holiness, what is good, what is different, what is better than what we could have ever accomplished on our own. When we consider this redemption, it is something profound. 
Isaiah describes it in such a poetic way, probably because he, he can't describe it any other way. It is full of redemption, a full restoration for those who would walk the path of righteousness set forth by God. Yet what we notice is that without God, no such path exists. In other words, the foundational element is not us, but God. He is the one who provides the road. He is the one who provides the righteousness, the holiness, and he provides the eternal city of peace, which we dwell forever with him. He provides nothing less than himself in order to bring this whole plan of redemption to pass. In this, we can hear the echoes of Christ. We consider the passage in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him there was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John, and he came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made himself known. In Christ, then, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this reality. Our wounds are healed. Our lives have purpose and meaning. Our redemption is secured. Our once barren deserts are now full of water and life. It is not anything we have done, but the one in whom we have grace Upon grace, the one who has brought glory down to us. As such, let us consider the truth of what Isaiah has proclaimed. We deserve the previous chapter, but by God's grace, we can have what we find today. God has provided a way of salvation which can never fail, on which our feet will never stumble, on which we find peace, justice, righteousness everlasting. Let us rejoice then that such a way has been made through Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice knowing that our sins can be forgiven. Let us rejoice in knowing that redemption is ours. Yes, let us rejoice in knowing our sin is forgiven. Our debts have been paid and we now are now declared children of the eternal kingdom of peace with our God. The wounds of the world will not keep us. The darkness of the world will not overwhelm us. The light of God guides us now and forevermore through this great salvation. I know that seems like a shorter sermon, but 
in a way, it's so beautiful. It's like, I don't know. You can't say more about it, but you could in a way. I don't know. I just love this chapter, I do. <laughs> Can you tell? Um, but in it, I think it's pretty clear we see the gospel in so many interesting ways. And it makes me so happy to see that. Um, and so the gospel begins with our origins. It begins with us. Oh, actually, it begins with God. And God created all things according to his will. And last of all, he created humanity to bear his image. And this is a beautiful, profound, wonderful thing which we should all rejoice at. Because it's so easy for the world to say, no, this isn't you, you're something else. You mean nothing, you have no purpose, you are just here by chance. And to hear that over and over and over again, that's despair. But this, what the Bible tells us about who we are, being made in the image of God, and that we have a purpose because of that, that's a far greater news and story than what the world tells us about who we are. But of course, with that comes the problem, because if we are truly made in the image of God, then how come there's so much darkness in this world? And it has to do with the fact that we are sinners. We chose to sin. Adam and Eve started it, but we continue it. And we see that in our world today, as we see truths being distorted for the sake of power, We see how even we are willing in our time to trade the gospel of Jesus Christ which heals us of all of our sins and then take it and twist it for the sake of social power. Which is what we're seeing today in so many churches, so many congregations who are forcing us to adopt an ideology, a way of justice which is so foreign to the gospel of Jesus Christ in which all people find salvation. How dark are we that we would be willing to distort the truth of God for the sake of what we believe is right instead of simply humbly coming, humbly coming to the reality of who God is as he has revealed himself through Jesus. It takes wickedness, sinfulness to distort such truth. And here we are in the middle of it. We are in the midst of of a time of great sinfulness in which truth itself is being destroyed. And if you were to question, okay, the last chapter, chapter 34, and why humanity deserves judgment, look at the world today. It's no different. We deserve judgment because we are sinners. Because we take truth and we break it. Because we sin in our darkness. We lie, we cheat, we steal, and we justify our lying and cheating and stealing in any way that we can. Instead of saying, I'm a sinner who's in need of grace. But, despite that, despite what we see, we have today's chapter. God has made a way for us to know truth, for us to know justice and righteousness and what is good and holiness. And he has done it through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. The way. And it's amazing that they say the way here in Isaiah. And do you know what the first Christians called following after Jesus in Acts? The way. The way. And you see this connection with what Isaiah is saying. This is it. That's who he was talking about. He was talking about a time when we would be able to have a way to God. And it's in Jesus. And all of the things that we thought was destroyed. I mean, think about it so even more so. You know, the disciples, when Jesus died on the cross, they were in a dark time. (laughs) 
They thought it was the end. They thought it was chapter 34. <laughs> Judgment. Darkness. Barrenness. No light anymore. It's gone. It's been extinguished. Little did they know that despite the barrenness of the previous chapter, chapter 35 comes and there's light again. So it is with Jesus. His dead body in the ground. Bursting with life that overflows onto us. And it's incredible. I say it's indescribable in today's sermon because how, how do you describe it with the words that we have? We try our best. But it's so much greater than we can even say. And it's the truth. And it's the truth not just for this race or that race or this people or that people or this gender or that gender. It's the truth for everyone. And it's the reality of God himself which we humbly come to we embrace and we are changed because of it. Now the question is, where does it lead? Well, if we continue in darkness, the only way we're going to fall is into a pit, into darkness itself. But if we follow light, if we follow the way that God has declared to us through his son Jesus Christ, through the prophets, his law, all the wisdom he has given to us, we're going to find something incredible. Something that is beyond measure. Something that If we could hold it in our hands for just a second, we'd be fulfilled. The glory of God himself. That's where we're heading. That's what we get to receive. That's what Isaiah is talking about. And that's what we do receive in Jesus. So, I get that we live in a time that's just really weird. (laughs) I get that we live in a time where we're having to make really hard decisions as a congregation, as individuals... As truth itself is truly being distorted <laughs> on all around us, whether it has to do with human biology or it has to do with the fact that we keep justifying sins. I get it. It's really hard right now, in a way. But let's not lose any hope in the fact that Christ has come. And no matter what, even though it's hard for us right now, we know that we should drop in a bucket to eternity. <laughs> We have truth on our side. Even if the whole world rejects it, I'd rather have truth than a lie. Let us pray. Father, as we continue forward in this faith, in this way of holiness, we ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and strength to overcome this dark world. And Lord, we know that it's possible because you have provided the way for us to overcome, and it's not through our own strength but it is through your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we place our faith. He is the way. He is the truth. He is indeed the life. And so, Lord, as we continue forward, as we take each step, each day at a time, let us shine his light, because his light will overcome all darkness. It is the only way to overcome the darkness. We thank you. We thank you for all that you have accomplished, Lord. All the promises that you have fulfilled. And we have hope in the future fulfillments of so much more. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.